Let's get lucky. All right. <laughs> I actually think that was heard. Let's get lucky. That sounds good. Oh. That's a great way to start the podcast. <laughs> Uh, actually, sometimes, sometimes I, I, I want to go. I'm not a Trekkie at all. Sometimes I want to start this by saying Stardate, uh, but it doesn't work. Well, uh, Garrick, we are two lucky guys today because we have yes. on the line with us two of the world's greatest uh, minds and missionaries. Mr. Two legends, Josh. really. Two, two, two legends. legends. On, yeah, honestly, uh, much more than we deserve. Uh, Joe Schley, who uh, f- formerly of Paris, who was with uh, crew in Paris and crew in crew in France for almost 15 years has joined us today from the Chicago area has moved back to the U S where he now serves as the director of arts for crew city. City, Yeah, that is right. Executive director for crew arts and culture. Executive director for crew arts and culture. Great. And then the other person that we have on the line today is Mike Schatzman, who legend has it helped to start the ministry in Estonia. Yeah. Went back to the U S did a bunch of things with WSN or global missions uh, with crew and then moved with his family back to uh, overseas to Lisbon, Portugal, where he sends me pictures of the blue sky every day and the weather report and taunts me with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Mike. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to mention that uh, Estonia, but also France, and and even even although Lisbon, you know, it's a little bit nicer, but those are very difficult places to start spiritual movements. Graveyards and, and, and to graveyard. Yes, yeah. Especially, especially, yeah. Especially Estonia and France are tough, tough places. I mean, I'm not yeah. trying to plunge too much into the subject. But I did not die there. So I'm not- <laughs> that's right. Well, as far as we're concerned, Joe, when you left, you're dead to us. <laughs> well, and, and Joe did leave. I mean, kind of as a hero. He, he left. You were well liked. The French did not want you to leave, which is, which is, which is a saying a lot, I think. Well, or maybe they figured that this is the way to get rid of Americans is just to be really nice to them. And they'll leave. I don't know. No, they were, they were great. I was not... It was not a graveyard for me. It, it had its challenges. Maybe, uh, maybe I was in, uh, what's it called, the ICU uh, for a while, but uh, I, I did not die there. So, yeah, You know, you, I, I want to get into this a little bit because you and your family thrived in Paris, from, from at least from the outside looking in. Uh, you guys embraced Parisian life. Um, how many pictures are there of you with a baguette under your arm and a croissant? And your mouth, I'm sure. But, uh, wow, I really hope that none of our French friends listen to this because I pretty much just <laughs> just insulted <laughs> them all. <laughs> and Mike Schatzman, uh, I mean, you you and your, your wife, well, actually, you and Garrick got to know each other in Estonia years yeah. ago. Yeah, 1996, Isn't that right, Mike? It is indeed. In fact, Garrick, I think to this day, is the only missionary to spend an entire year, including a winter, <laughs> in Estonia without a heavy coat. It's a feat. Never <laughs> owned a it's heavy a mild coat. Over, it was an oversight. I, I remember spending Christmas <laughs> with Garrick, and it was minus, we went sledding, it was minus 25 Celsius. And he's out there without a heavy coat. I don't know what that hey, is in Fahrenheit. Layers, so layers. Cold. You layer up. How how layered were you? Like ten? Uh, you know, one, two. 
got a fleece under the kind of jackety thing. So, and then, so four, four with long underwear too. You have to go with the long underwear in the winter in Estonia. It, it just sounds like a, I can just hear this new Texan thinking to him, <laughs> how bad can it get? And so, <laughs> it can't be that cold. <laughs> and then he realizes it can get bad. It was cold. So, Mike, how long were how long were you in Estonia? I was there eight years. So eight I years. Uh, went there single. Uh, started dating my wife uh, at the time, and we ended up getting engaged there and married, and uh, had our first child there. All right, and then moved back to Austin, Texas. Yep, and we moved back, and we uh, we moved back at the time. We still thought we had one more country left in us. It just wasn't right after Estonia. And after seven years in the WSN role, or the global missions role, we started looking around, or even about five-year mark, we started feeling like we had one more country left in us. We used to joke that we used to say, gosh, if we have one more country left in us, let's go somewhere where the weather is warm, the food is good, the language is easy, and the people like each other. And one thing led to another, we end up in Portugal. What are you, what are you trying to say about Estonia? <laughs> no, we love that time. I know, I thought about that. But. <laughs> yeah, but Estonians would be honest that, you know, there's a lot of Estonian jokes about how they don't, they don't necessarily like to spend time with each other. So, Can, can you tell right, them right? when they're <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Estonians are great, great people. They they brought down the Soviet Union by singing. That's how tough the Estonians I, are. It's it it really is incredible. An underest an underestimated people. My, one of my favorite stories about sorry about Estonia here is um, Garrick. Your time there, in which you got to go into the old Soviet bunker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We found a bunker out, and we it was like four stories underground with two hallways that went like a hundred meters both ways with offices, and they had like a control room with maps of Europe and NATO. And it was really fascinating time to be there. Do you just, you just have pictures of that or do you still have some paraphernalia? I have have some paraphernalia from this underground Soviet uh, base. I do have some stuff in in Dallas. I gave a lot of it away to some supporters and friends, but uh, I've got some of it. See, these are, these are, I feel like these moments when you get to tell these stories of the early days of like when, when we were on the mission field or whatever, and, and now when you have the internet and everything else, I feel like the grandpa who tells his grandkids, like, I used to walk uphill in the snow both ways to school, you know, like 37 miles to school. And, you know, it's like all the fun stories, uh, you know, like that, that anyway, I, I was just about to go into a, a, a story of, uh, my time in Central Asia, which in, entails, uh, let's say, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, well, that's a whole that other. That's a whole other podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah. Think another episode there. Yeah, I really should. I really shouldn't go into it. Okay, so, but that is a question though that I've been wondering lately. Um, one of the things that I love about when we get together. Um, I feel like I'm always challenged in my faith. I'm always challenged in my thinking, um, mostly because my thinking's so terrible and I offer it so quickly. You guys are quick to uh, bat it down, like a, gently, gently you do it. Uh, and so, which I appreciate. But um, one of the things that I've, I've been wondering about, uh, and Joe, I'll, I'll ask you this first, because you, you have recently moved back to the U.S. and you're probably in a time of reflection uh, on your time in, in France, um, you were in Toulouse before you were in Paris, but um, what are, what are some of the things that you learned 
about yourself and about God during your time in France? And as you've, as you've moved back to the, to, to the U.S. and kind of adjusted to that, but are there any reflections that you've walked away from? I... Uh, well, you know, right away you said twice, you used the word, move back to the United States. And, and I, I might say that one of the things that I've learned is you never go back to something. I, I didn't, mm. I'm not moving back to America. Um, and, and I and say that in two ways, America is a very different place than when I left the U S the first time with Susie, my wife, uh, a number of years ago. So America has changed. It's not the same place. I, I, it still boggles my mind that I never lived in America when President Obama was the president here. So I kind of lived his presidency uh, from a distance, which is always strange. I, I wasn't here for 9-11. I, you know, I wasn't. So anyways, so I didn't come back to anything in America. America's changed. And, I, I, and, I'm, and I'm a much different person uh, in so many ways. Some of them are hard to really be able to articulate others are much more easy to articulate but i didn't go i'm not going back to anything so it's not a correction bear but I, it highlights for me something that i've that i have thought about quite a bit there is no going back we're only only moving forward and we're moving forward in, into unknowns in many ways so uh and maybe one thing that i've learned is that i'm 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 more comfortable with that moving forward into something unknown um, I'm, I'm a little more comfortable with the ambiguity. Uh, I've noticed that uh, probably this whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic that many people are suffering through and loss of life is just terrible. Um, but it also shows us our propensity to want to control everything and to have a sense of, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say maybe you guys experienced this, but I received several emails from people who were saying, okay, here's how we need to get through this pandemic. Here's stage one, here's stage two, here's stage three, here's stage four. And I thought, what, who in the world can decide this is the way <laughs> and these are the stages that's going to happen. Now, I'm not trying to downgrade the people who are thinking about it and are trying to give some thought to it. So, that, you know, I, I appreciate that. But my first thought was, we don't even know anything about this. We don't even know yeah. how human nature is going to react. We don't know how, what this is going to change. So in, does that make sense? I, I just yeah, feel like absolutely. this sense of control, we all want to control and Americans have this propensity towards it. We need to put our plans together. And I feel like over the years, maybe this was France or maybe it was just in general, but a lot of things are just out of our control. And we really, um, we really can't determine a whole lot. Maybe, maybe France did it in the fact that ministry uh, ideas or thoughts or strategies that I had rarely worked, <laughs> rarely worked <laughs> in any way. So I can't control that, and and you know I can't control God the way God is not for me to control. And so uh, I'm I can't, kind of gave you a long answer, but maybe that says one thing: I, I really can't control a whole lot. And I need to learn to be comfortable with that and ex not only accept it, but maybe even learn how to thrive in uncontrollable situations. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you think that the French, do the French try to control things? And I'll, I'll ask that a question in, in the sense of comparing it to maybe the U S standard 
you know, an American mindset of, well, we can fix this sort of thing. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Um, well, I can't speak for all of the French or any, in any sense of the word. I can speak about what I kind of, we give you, we give you permission. Uh, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know, you know, maybe you guys in all European countries, I, we, we've put in a huge social safety net, which is in some sense a way to control uh, or mitigate negative things in, in, in the world, in our lives. The EU is a massive uh, sense of how can we can stop each other from fighting and killing one another, which I think is a great thing. So yes, I think in some ways they think they can control this, the social safety net that has been put out. Um, actually, it's interesting to see even in COVID-19, there's not been a, there has been some output from the government financially but not on the massive scale like in the U.S., in part because they're doing it regularly all the time. So I don't know that they need to put out $2 trillion to save businesses. They do it kind of regularly, progressively. So they've had to augment that. So I think in some ways they, they do think they control things. Uh, I think maybe Europeans, if I were to conjecture, because they have – thousands of years of history and ups and downs and plagues that killed what Garrick, a, a quarter of the population. I think they know over time, they, they, they don't control things and also a sense life moves on, time does move on, things do change. So maybe they don't have the same sense of, of this, we, can, we, can, we have this new frontier in front of us and we're gonna conquer it, and we're gonna take it over. History, I think, uh, is it does that to a people over thousands of years? Uh, does that make sense? So totally. yeah. they don't approach things in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, that'd be that'd be my that'd be my thoughts. You know, Vic Victoria and I uh, have been watching uh, a little bit of the English game on uh, Netflix. The story of the development of uh, football in England and uh, how it developed from a elite. Uh, nobleman's game to an everyman's game. And, um, and one of the things I was struck with, and I'm always struck with in Europe was when, you know, you go to these old manors that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And there's actually a, um, a building here in Uppsala where I live uh, that uh, oftentimes, you know, the building will have on it uh, the date of the building in which it was built. And this building is a is um it's kind of like a sorority fraternity house combined. It's a social um, social club for the university. And uh, it is actually, it predates the landing of uh, Columbus to the shores of America. And every time I walk in that building to go and talk to students there, I'm reminded of just how um, Europe and, and many other countries, really only the US and Australia, maybe New Zealand, you could throw in there, um, but a lot of places have been involved with the endeavor of building culture for 700 years. And we've been focusing on building economy for 200 uh, years as Americans. And, and that shapes your culture. That shapes your, that, you know, I, I think recently we were in the um, uh, London Museum and the Museum of London in London, because that's where if you're going to have a Museum of London, you would, you would keep it. And um, it just works out that way. And uh, anyway, so we were there and I, I was, uh, we were walking through and we got to the plague exhibition. And uh, you just 
think of the, it was something like 300,000 people died of the plague in, in London alone. I mean, it was just crazy. I'm probably getting those numbers wrong. It was 150,000. I have it in my head somewhere that it was about that. But anyway, the point being, I just remember thinking, and this was before COVID broke out. I just remember thinking, how was this? How, wow. How did that affect your life? How did you go through life thinking if I step foot outside this door, I could drop dead. And, and with the case of the plague, you drop dead in minutes. How does that affect how they rebuilt uh, after the London fires of, you know, all these different things. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to think. Um, so the experiences of a culture shape its, its, its shape its culture, right? The, the, what, what, it, what it goes through. Um, Mike, as you, as you look at, um, I think the way that you've seen the shaping of culture, uh, you know, you've lived in two very different places, Estonia and Portugal. That's why when I, lo- I love it when people are like, well, Europe is this way. I'm like, I wonder how Mike feels about that. Cause uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Estonia and Portugal don't see eye to eye on those things. But I, what, what are some of the things that you, I don't know if you have insights as to pick up as to how the story of a place affects the culture of that place. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Barrett, because I've lived in two very different places on either end, opposite ends, one in the far northeastern part of Europe, the other in the far southwestern part of Europe. And uh, But both places have a couple things in common. One, I think, is, is suffering. In Estonia, you know, in 800 years of the, of the country, when I moved there, there were only 40 years of freedom. The rest was occupied by, by Russians, of course, uh, Germans, Danes, Swedes. Uh, shout Swedes, out to yeah. you there. Yeah, Swedes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so there's a lot of suffering. And so I'm in this church. My wife and I are in this little church, 172 people, one of the largest churches in the city we were in. And uh, literally every person in the church had a family member either imprisoned or, or killed, murdered by the communists. Uh, for being things like university professors, uh, landowners, things like that. And so, uh, you know, the perspective on suffering, when you're in a church where everybody has experienced extreme suffering, it has a different perspective. And then here in in Portugal, literally until 1974, uh, Portugal was like a a third world country in Europe, uh, 60% illiteracy. Um, you know, uh, my generation, I'm 53, we call ourselves, we're referred to as the reading generation because of that, because at 10 years old, you only had education up to 10 years old. And then you went out, the oldest child typically would go out and go support the family and go to work. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, my older brother would have, would have finished fourth grade and gone and, and gone to work for the family. And uh, a lot of short Portuguese because, especially the elderly, because they only got one or two meals a day. And so the perspective, I think, on suffering and endurance is very, very different. And I remember having this conversation with my my, uh, Estonian pastor. And we're somebody was going through something in the church. Somebody's always going through something. And, you know, in my American mindset, it's like, you, what do you do? You do a GoFundMe campaign. You do a fundraiser, and you instantly relieve the suffering. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to explain to my pastor, hey, what if we did this, this? And he's kind of looking at me really confused. Like, what do you mean? He's like, it's just, it's suffering. You just persevere, and you endure it, and then you, you glorify mm-hmm. God in the middle of it. And that was something that from my American mindset, my American experience, I didn't have that grid or framework, you know? Wow. So, 
That's uh, uh, it's very interesting. It brought me to kind of think about, I, I sent you guys an, uh, actually an article, I believe it was in the New York Times, Ross Dudhat was writing about coronavirus. And he had a great quote in there, right? Which was, uh, God doesn't necessarily tell us why we suffer, but he creates meaning in suffering. And so there is there is meaning and purpose to suffering in, 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 if you're a follower of Jesus. And this is a fascinating, uh, uh, I think, uh, quote, but also a connection to what you're saying there, Mike, about how Europe and how you know most of the world really has had to kind of deal with suffering. So, so how then? How then? How then do you think? I don't. I don't want to make. I want to make this a little bit more timeless than just coronavirus. But um, how how do you think that the 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 Christian is to respond in the middle of 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 suffering? And then have you have you seen instances where you would say like you can point to people. So a, a, a story or a person's like, wow, that person suffered well, or that really, you know, is emblazoned on my mind or whatever. Yeah. We used to, um, we used to take these three old widows to church and uh, all three of them had suffered immensely. One had been deported to Siberia twice. Um, uh, just incredible stories. One lady, her name was Salmi, and we used to take her to church every Sunday and failing health. And uh, so Christmas time comes and we went to each of the three ladies and, and just spent that you know, Christmas time in, in Estonia is elongated. So you get multiple days and just spent several hours with the ladies and so, several hours with lay Salmi who had no children because her husband had spent a significant time of her childbearing years in prison for being a Christian and uh, had no children. She was now widowed and uh, was almost blind. And uh, so we're sitting there. I remember she's got this little, uh, little Christmas tree, probably about 12, 14 inches tall up there. And she's got it decorated underneath. She's made a, a, a Jesus out of a cracker box and her manger, a little uh, manger cradle out of a cracker box and sitting there. And she's telling us about this Jesus and really explaining the incarnation to us. And uh, then she pulls out her Bible and she goes, I can't see very well. And she pulls out this magnifying glass and she's got to read her giant print Bible with her magnifying glass. And she's reading the word to us. And she's like, you know, I can't see very well anymore, but you know, I praise God for the days and the years I've had sight. And then we had brought some food for her and she goes, yeah. And she said, you know, mostly I eat this very plain thing because my stomach can't uh, take these kind of foods, but I praise God for the fact that I've got food to eat. And uh, I think what I saw there, what hit was my wife and I came away and just going, oh my gosh, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of a life of suffering, she's got hope and she was talking about hope and how she can't wait to get to heaven. She's got hope and she has joy. And I think we're supposed to persevere as believers with an eye towards heaven. We have a, a sure hope in heaven. And, uh, and to have joy. And I've been meditating. I don't know if I can keep rambling here, but I've uh, been meditating this week on in these last couple of weeks on Psalm 4610. It says, be still and know that I am God. That's the part we all know. And that's the part that gets uh, cross-stitched into little things that get hung on walls. Be still and I know that I'm God. And it makes us feel in your good. Bathroom. Really, exactly, exactly. But the second part of that verse says, I will be exalted among the nations. And I realized that I get stillness in the middle of, of suffering, in the middle of turmoil. I get stillness when I align my heart with God's heart. And when I look at the perspective of my God is going to be exalted among the nations and his name yeah. is going to be 
no, great. And if my heart is lined up with that, I can get stillness and quietness in the middle of the suffering. Gosh, it's so, it's, it's so true. You know, the orientation of my heart uh, has been the theme of a theme of mine for the last uh, probably six to eight months, but I spent a good deal of time during the day kind of reflecting uh, where is my heart oriented right now? And I spend my morning, my morning routine these days is really just trying to orient myself towards the Lord because I, I find that if I check my phone too early or if I do these things, I get so distracted. And, and, you know, right now, as far as suffering goes uh, or as far as the virus goes or whatever else, I, I pick up my phone and I start gaming out, okay, when is this going to end or what is it going to look like? Or, you know, these, this, that, and the other thing. And I get so consumed by that. And what's interesting is I, over the day I begin to produce anxiety um, mm. it's not worry in the sense of like, Oh, the world's going to come down, but rather I get jazzed up. So I'm, I'm just wound up ready to pounce on something because I need to control something. And, uh, to, to highlight the difference between that though, is the other day, instead of kind of looking at my phone or whatever, I went on a, on a walk and uh, I put in Andrew Peterson's uh, resurrection letters and I was just kind of meditating on it and resurrection letters, volume one that he does. It's really, it's, it's, it's about the resurrection, but it's really about eschatology. It's about the returning King. And I was amazed at how for the rest of the day, my heart was oriented towards everything's going to be okay uh, because he's always good and he's coming back. And it was just, it was a, it was an incredible, incredible thought for me of how the orientation of my heart is how important it is to orient my heart towards the Lord rather than towards other things, which is what a good deal of the Psalms is about, right? I mean, it's about the orientation of the heart. Barrett, um, <clears throat> you talked about suffering and comparing France a little bit to especially Estonia. France w- would not say it has been occupied that much, has a small little sliver of occupation. But for the most part, France has been on the opposite side. It has been the occupier and has colonized quite a bit of the mm-hmm. world um, and has been in a position of opulence and power uh, for a long time and still reaps the benefits of that in many, in many ways. Um, but I, I learned something from another part of Europe, um, that's not on the continent, uh, in, in the Caribbean, you know, Europe extends all the way to the Caribbean. Some of the French islands there, which are basically like Hawaii for us as Americans, that they have the same statue. So it's Europe extends all the way over to the Caribbean, but Guadalupe is an Island and that was, colonized by the French and colonized by many others as well. And so it has a history of slavery. It has a history of oppression, still very poor Island. And uh, I met this woman one time there and she said, you, she called, she called you. So I know I had to look up when she said you French. And I was like, Hey, (laughs) but you know, you French, you made us love oceans. And I said, what do you mean by that? Uh, you you made us love oceans. And, and my first thought was, well, doesn't everybody like oceans? And and she said, but for us, the ocean is uh, is is a prison. It's not, it's it's a symbol of being prisoners. It's a, it's not a symbol of what you made it to be. So she's French kind of made it to be play, a place where we played. You know, you did water sports. And, mm-hmm. and, and we, most Americans think that about the oceans. You know, it's a place where you go and you swim and you play and you go on vacation. It's fun. But for, for them, the ocean meant they were their prison. You know, they were dragged mm-hmm. over on boats and they were dropped off there. And the ocean only represented where they could not go back home. Um, and so it was very poignant 
at that same time, I was reading in Revelation, in I think it's Revelation 22, where where uh, it says that there, the sea will be no more. You get to heaven, yep. and the sea will be no more. Remember that phrase? Small little mm-hmm. phrase. I'm like, what? What in the world? Why is it there? And only a person who views the ocean as a bad thing, as a, as a place of prison, as a place of terror, can understand why the sea will be no more. For us, for many of us who are listening to this, who see the ocean as a place of play and vacation and fun and life, right. and you put it on, that's where the sun rises. This is where God is. Look at the immense ocean. Isn't that where God is? That's where... God is present. We, we could never imagine why the sea would be gone. Uh, but God tells us the sea will be gone because in some sense, and I learned this from them in Guadalupe, in some sense, God is actually right there where, uh, going back to what Garrick said, right there where they are experiencing the most suffering, where their most oppression is, uh, God is there. Now, if I were... Um, like many Catholic thinkers, they would say, God, that, that is actually where God is. God is on the side of those who are being oppressed. God is on the mm-hmm. side of those who are poor. Uh, I might not go that far, but I, you should get pretty close to that because in some sense the scriptures teach us that God is right there in the midst of suffering. God is right there in the midst of that. That's where God was when he hung on the cross. Um, and so he, God gives meaning to that. God gives hope in the midst of that. But it's really hard for me uh, to understand that, to grasp that, because I've, in general, I've not experienced too much of that. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not saying I have any answers to that. Well, do you go ahead, Garrett. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to. I think there's something very interesting in there. What's the the uh, the verse where? Um, you know, I'm really bad about the actual uh, reference uh, place, but you know, where, uh, you know, there's this story, well, story or they're unpacking things with Jesus and uh, saying, you know, well, Jesus, when did we ever, you, you came and visited me in prison you came and did this. And I said, when did you ever do that? Oh, when you, when you, when you went and served someone in prison, when you gave food to the, you know, is in some sense, there's a question that I always have is, is there something somewhat mystical in that, in that we actually, are more Christ-like or have more union with Christ when we are serving the least. You know, I, I, I don't, I, that's obviously a, you know, maybe a little touchy subject theologically. Uh, you know, depending where you fall on the on the. And I and I and I think I would hesitate to also, Garrick, if, as I hear you speaking, I was thinking, you know, we we don't want to. How should I put it? Um, we want to also fight to get people out of those situations. We want to yeah, exactly, yeah. Want to go? Look, let's let them. Let's let people stay in poverty and oppression because that's where God is. I, I yeah. don't think that's what the scriptures are teaching us either. Uh, but there's something poignant about how you look at the scriptures and what is your perspective that you should at least consider. Um, uh, sorry, I go on a little rant here, but Psalm 46 is a great psalm because it talks about uh, this being still before the Lord, but. Right in the middle of that, it says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The, the river, from the beginning of, Rev, of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the river always represents God's presence and God's power and connection with history and all of these things. Oceans represent evil and danger, chaos. bad things and chaos yeah. almost exclusively. But as a Westerner who generally sees oceans in a certain way, we would we would never understand it that way. Um, well, I have a lot to learn from those who have suffered under oppression and injustice. 
there's a so a side a side comment here because I think it's interesting. The great French striker Thierry Henry is from Guadeloupe, uh, one of the greatest soccer players ever. So, but but I think so. I don't know if we want to. This is a point to go on. Maybe let's see what you guys think. But is it? So, oh, is it a rabbit trail? It's a rabbit trail here, but it's <laughs> it's it's tied into Europe. So and and maybe tied into missions and what we've all experienced. But we're living in a time where a guy who was born in Guadeloupe can become the star striker for France, uh, for Barcelona, and, and be one of the greatest soccer players ever. We also experience that, I think, in, our, in all of our uh, countries now doing where we work, is that there's a large second, third, first generation of people who have come over, who, who come from that experience, Joe, of suffering, of pain, and now are in Europe and are, uh, you know, it, in many cases, they are the church now. They're, or they are the leaders of the church. Um, even our own movement in, in Agape, we have many of that of those people. That sounds weird. I didn't mean to say like those those people, but but that that, that the immigrant experience has now come to Europe. And uh, we'll put a I, disclaimer I work, at the end of this podcast. <laughs> sorry, as I, I keep saying things <laughs> that that sound bad. But what I'm saying is, I I I in Spain, many of our staff and I work on a team that has people who are uh, you know Spanish, but their their um, their background is Ecuadorian or uh you know other places in the world or they are because we're in a global world now they are missionaries sent from argentina or brazil to to work in spain so i i i think that'd be interesting maybe we should see what mike mike thinks there first and then yeah undoubtedly you know our our movement uh our movements I, I work with six different nationalities uh just in our our staff but our movements uh particularly because of Portugal's uh, history of colonialism, which ended only in, in 74, 75. You know, we have a lot Wait, of Angolan. The, right? the, uh, the Portuguese, was it they didn't have, what was it? They didn't have explorers, they had discoverers. Is that, is that what? No, not conquistadors. Uh, conquistadors. Okay, Spain had conquistadors. Spain, yes. You conquered. We discovered. Yes, we discovered. I had a Portuguese, uh, it's probably a first year in Portugal around right a park hanging out in Lisbon and start talking to this old man. He starts talking about the great Portuguese discoverers. He said, those Spanish, they conquered places, but we, we discovered them. He said, you got to understand our, our discoveries were friendly. We gave these people languages. We gave them names. We gave them our religion and our culture. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure they had names and I'm pretty sure they had a way to talk to each other before they, <laughs> they were discovered. But, uh, but that's an aside. But, uh, but we have a lot, you know, I'm, I'm Mozambican, Angolan, uh, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Brazilian, huge Brazilian population. I would say the immigrant population, at least in Portugal and probably most of Europe, you guys can say, has been one of the hugest blessings to the body of Christ in Europe that, that I can see. It's, uh, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that in Sweden. I mean, I, I, um, our church for, for Sweden is a very large church. It's all, uh, we're almost 500 people. Uh, we're not even largest church in our city, which is really strange for Sweden. The the rest of Sweden is not like this, but, uh, and, uh, I would say I counted actually one Sunday. Of course we didn't have 500 people on that Sunday. It was probably a hundred or so. And I counted, I think 30 different nationalities in the room. And uh, it was, it was pretty cool, uh, you know, to see just all the different 
nationalities and everything. And, and a couple of people I found out later who I thought were Swedish and I was talking to them later uh, by chance or whatever, were actually like, I think she was Croatian, uh, this one woman. So yeah, I had to add, you know, the number or whatever. So, uh, but yeah, it totally is, totally is how it is. I think, I think we miss out. There is great potential to miss out on the blessing of immigration, not just of what it does to a country to, you know, add new ideas and hard workers and everything else, but also because of globalization, those who would come into the church and revitalize uh, our throngs. Um, we're, we're blessed in our church to actually have a good number of Afghans who have come to Sweden as refugees. Um, many of them are having to leave right now, uh, but have embraced the faith and have revitalized in a lot of ways because they're young guys, but they're faithful to follow Jesus and hungry to grow. And there's this older people in the church who have put their lives into discipling these young men. Uh, and it's really, really cool to see. And they're, there are stories like this all over Sweden. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely true. So another just mentioned, since we're talking about Sweden, Zlatan Ibramovic, a Serbian That's right. uh, immigrant child who became one of the greatest strikers. And they're also like Henrik, Henrik Larson. And uh, what was the other guy? Dalin? No, Dalin, yeah. They were also some kind of immigrant. So you, mean, you, mean so Dolph, you can explain. Dolph Lundgren, is that what you mean? Oh, well, it's a long time in the 94 World Cup. I must break uh, you. Yeah. But so, so what I'm just saying is, you know, and I'm sure Portugal, you guys can name some people who are, you know, not pure, you know, born in Portugal or their parents or grandparents not necessarily born there. So what you can see is soccer explains a lot about yeah. the world that we're living in. I just got to break in and, and, and mention this one, especially since Joe's on the call. Eder, who scored the winning goal in the 2016 Euro Cup for Portugal, is is from Cabo Verde. So yep, uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, and and the last French team that won the World Cup. I mean, what? And well, the last two that won the World Cup, going back to '98, no, 2000, no, which '98, '98 World Cup, 2000. Mm-hmm. The French were that was a incredibly diverse team from all all over. You know. Backgrounds different. Zidane Zidane, one of the greats. Sorry. I love this rabbit trail. This is one of my favorite. <laughs> so you guys can be going. But I, I did need to make a comment that Zlat, Zlatan, uh, when he came to Paris, he said, and well, no, sorry, he came, he stayed there, what, four years, Garrick, and then he left. He said, I, I came a king and I left a god. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty. <laughs> didn't quite rub off on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so a, Swedish, a, humi- Swedish hum- understated humility did not yeah. did not waste itself on Zlatan. Uh, so, you know what he did when he uh, moved to Los Angeles. So I was we were back for a few months in Los Angeles when he moved to the Galaxy a few years ago, and uh, when he announced it, he took out a one page ad in the Los Angeles Times that had, and all it said was "You're welcome, Los Angeles," and he signed his name. <laughs> yeah. An entire an entire page. It was it was and he paid for it. It was, yep. like, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> was he shirtless as well? <laughs> probably, probably. So funny, funny, awesome story. So my daughter was maybe two years old. She was talking a little bit uh, and it was a European cup, I believe. And Sweden was in it and Zlatan was playing. And Zlatan is known when he would play, when, well, when he plays in generally. If, if the ball's not near him, he's not running. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's just not motivated. But when he gets the ball, he's really good. So, you know, give him, give him what it is. But anyway, so my daughter, really young, said, why, why doesn't Zlatan run? 
she's like two years old. And she's because we pointed out, you're like, hey, Zlatan's the important guy for Sweden. And she was like, yeah, but he doesn't run. <laughs> That's awesome. So I feel like I feel like when we talk about in in missiology, the you know, the shift that's been going on for decades now from the global north to the global south, mm-hmm. I feel like Europe is one of the places where you experience that in a real way on every Sunday morning in a way that probably may, many parts of America, maybe, maybe I should, I should overstate, but you experience it quite a bit. You see it, you experience it uh, in, every Sunday morning, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You, you, you live that out, which is interesting because, um, I mean, you're experiencing that day to day, week to week. Um, and yet in some sense, do, uh, I, 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 we don't, we don't really look to Europe. We, when I say we, I'd say here in the U S look to Europe as a model or an example about how to live out the new realities of the church. Um, we still tend to see ourselves here as the best way to think about the church and Europe is, is kind of behind the times. Uh, and, and I might go, maybe we should think about it the opposite way that you are kind of ahead of the times you're trying to work through, of course, probably in very imperfect ways and trying to wrestle through with all the implications, but you've been wrestling with it for years, decades. And, and yet very few would go, that's a place where we should look to as a way to think about the church. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Sorry, I just took over your role as question. This, this, is, this is great. No, this is why we, we, we invited you on, Joe. Um, so I, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I don't want to say this particular question, but it relates to it. Um, so part of the reality that we see, I think Europe is Christianity seems to always do best at the margins. Um, Christ shines when Christians are having to, to live out their faith because they've been a marginalized people. It doesn't mean that we should seek to be marginalized. I think that that would be stupid wherever we can be as many as possible. That's a, that's a good thing, but you begin to lose, you get comfortable, you know, and you, you lose effectiveness maybe, but so I think that Europe is a good example right now. So of, of where you have a situation where you had Christendom and Christendom is gone. The society no longer really accepts. And in some ways, Stefan Poss makes this, makes this uh, point. It's, it's like Christianity was always subsidized as, as a, as a religion. So, you know, the airlines in Europe, you know, or in, or in various places have been subsidized and, and had a an, uh, quote unquote unfair advantage, right? And so tax money or whatever else. Well, Christianity has often been subsidized in Europe and that people in some cases, like in Sweden up until not terribly long ago, people were required to be members of the church. And there were, one of the ways is if you have Swedish heritage, um, Sweden is a great place to have Swedish heritage because you can come here and find out all sorts of things about if you just have one piece of information because the church kept such good logs because all things were required, baptisms, burials, you know, deaths, you know, all that, all that stuff, marriages. And, and so it was subsidized in some sense, but that subsidy has been taken away and society never doesn't accept that anymore. And part of being a Christian in Europe today 
is realizing how do I live out my faith when I'm now on the margins? Uh, and I think one of the things that the world is, is grappling with, specifically the U.S., but Western world is grappling with, is how do I live out my faith when I'm on the margins, but I still think things should be subsidized in some sense? And I think that's, that's the tension. But in Europe, what I, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I, certainly, I certainly think that we're seeing a lot of people get really good. And I think the immigrant population that comes in because they live on the margins in some sense because they're, they're our pilgrims, right? They have come to a place, they speak the language, but they're not, they're, they're the first generations, they're not fully accepted into society in completely. They are. I mean, I don't think that there's terrible racism that exists in in Europe in, a, in an oppressive sense. But but they're they're so they're learning how to kind of weave in and out of those spaces in order to to adjust and to live and to make impact. But they're not afraid of their faith either. And I think that that's something that um, that that's effective. So I think that it's a good model of 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 how to navigate these things. I'm not saying that we've learned how to do it. Uh, you know, I think in Sweden sometimes we we have a sense of I think people are still reaching for Christendom. We want that favored place in society still. Uh, but I think that favorite place is long, long gone. Um, um, I, you know, I plunge into this with a little bit of fear and trepidation, Barrett. But um, here in the U.S. and in the last campaign, it was promised to give power back to the church. There was a quote from um, a certain politician who shall go un, unnamed who said, I want to give power back to the church. And, and I really recoiled from that. It, it really shook me up because I thought that's, that's the last thing we want or need. At least that's the way I thought. That's the last, that's the last thing we want. First of all, no, no politician gives the church power anyway. Right. So, uh, but, but secondly, that's, it's just, that's just so antithesis of the way Jesus did things, thought about things. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And it's such a temptation to want to grab back onto power and prestige and have your place. That's why I think we, we, we can learn so much from the church in Europe, because you had power at one time, you have it no more, and it looks like you're suffering, but maybe actually it's the best place. It's the best place for, for the church. Um, yeah, it's refining, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah. Pregnant pause. <laughs> well, Somebody I'll, unmute themselves and I'll, talk. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask Mike a question. So, uh, so you you know you talk about the 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 suffering of Estonia. Maybe, maybe this isn't ter- ter- terribly apropos in the suffering of Portugal, but now you have you know this 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 community and maybe you know spain we don't have we didn't have uh you know our our colonial era ended a lot a lot longer ago uh so that's that's still kind of part of the conversation but it's not as strong but you, you know you talk about angola mozambique who were uh you know what 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 are those students or those people in the church what have you all seen them bring into the experience of the european church and does it have anything to do with something similar to, you know, the, the Estonian church who suffered under uh, communism? Yeah. Um, they bring a lot in. My, my pastor's actually Angolan, mm-hmm. um, been in Portugal for a long time. 
it's uh there's definitely well i there's definitely a, an attitude of perseverance i how do i say toughness but um i feel like i'm walking into a loaded <laughs> kind of a, a loaded question with this one but I call it rabbit trail grenades. Yeah, exactly. I think the immigrant community tends to be a lot tougher than uh, than the the national community. Now, I'm saying that I'm going to say our Portuguese, I think, are much tougher than uh, and our Portuguese students are much tougher than American students because, in a sense, our Portuguese students their their parents were the one and two meal a day people. So. Yeah, but that's, but uh, saying that, I think our immigrant community, they just learn to deal with stuff. I was talking to a, um, another Angolan student, sharp, sharp guy, and he was talking about the issue of suffering, and he was talking about a, a friend of his who's just complaining about the difficulties they have in life and stuff, and this is a guy who kind of came here, his parents sent him here and sacrificed to send him to, to Portugal for education opportunities, hadn't seen his parents in years, and lives a pretty meager existence trying to study and stuff and he's like man they just got to grow up and understand life is hard and suck it up and he was kind of that way and he's a, a sharp guy but it brings with it a, just a, a sense of a toughness perseverance and uh i don't know grit i guess if you want to call it that so yeah you know it's it's fascinating because there's a um classicist uh victor davis hansen who wades into politics quite a bit and at the advent of the um or not advent but of during the uh war in iraq and afghanistan he uh he wrote a book called the father of us all and he was reflecting over western culture basically greek and roman culture and he was reflecting over kind of the the rise and fall of those places. And he was going through citing kind of how they rose and the hunger with which they rose and the difficulties with which they were enabled to able to endure. And his point of kind of what he was processing through in the book was, you know, America went through a lot of those things when it was kind of rising to the top, so to speak. Um, and people were hungry and they were willing to sacrifice great things in, to, in order to see something um, happen or whatever. But as, as societies get more affluent, they have a less of a tolerance for difficulty. Um, and I've often thought about that in terms of my own experience within missions. Um, when I was younger, I spent a good deal of time in like, let's say less developed countries um, where you know, a, a good, I, we, we got a blender when I was in Central Asia. Um, someone, someone came on a visit and uh, we had, it was hot outside. It was like 115 degrees or something like that. I and mean, we was melting the pavement and we had no AC. We lived in a big concrete Soviet style block building that was basically an oven. And, um, and so we were just dying. And this person, we were like, oh man, I could just die for a milkshake or a smoothie. So this guy left us money for a blender. And you would have thought we won the lottery um, because we were like, oh my gosh, we get to buy a blender. And so we were blending like anything and everything for weeks. <laughs> but joy has never been so sweet for me um, as moments like that, because it was, I, I didn't, I didn't have something, but as, as time's gone on, I've moved to Sweden, which I would argue is the toughest place I've ever done ministry. So life is easy, but, but the difficulty of ministry is tough. Um, but 
my tolerance level as I've gotten older and as I've gotten established and, you know, I have a house or a, well, apartment, um, and, and all these things, I, my tolerance level with the difficulties that I'm willing to put up with are quite low. What I, what I bring to the Lord and when complaint is, is, is shameful <laughs> in all honesty, it's just outright shameful. And I, and I think that, I think that, that, the immigrants or the immigrant community that brings to Europe, they can bring that perspective of let's not forget that staying close to the Lord in the middle of difficulty is an important thing because they've experienced that. Right. Yeah. If I could add one more thing too, that they, they, they bring a lot of things, but it's, I mean, Portugal is an incredibly, uh, and Spain too, uh, family is a huge value and big family and community, and uh, the the immigrant community and largely brings a huge sense of uh, of family, especially you're talking southern hemisphere immigrants. Um, it's it's just always an interesting kind of thing. As believers, we uh, we talk about the importance of family. We talk about the importance of community. And I'm I'm speaking to, in North America. We talk about that quite a bit too. However, I don't think I've ever really seen it that sense of family and community lived out in the U.S. like I've seen it lived out amongst the immigrant community. So as we as believers, American believers, want to learn about community and family and what it looks like to sacrifice for, for your community and really live out and live in community, which are Christian values, I think the immigrant, we can learn a lot from the immigrant community, and particularly talking about the Southern Hemisphere immigrant community. That, that I, I have a, I mean, along with that, Mike or anybody else, um, you know, you hear, you'll hear the complaints about immigration um, uh, in some circles as being that you're going to, these are people that are changing or ruining our culture, or this is kind of going to affect our culture in, in a negative way. Um, have, we, have you seen that to be true in Europe? Uh, or what, you know, Mike, you were talking about a little bit how it enhances culture, but uh, what would you guys say to that potential argument that I know I've heard in certain places? That, um, that it would change culture or that yeah. there's a complaint. It would be a negative to our yeah. culture, our American yeah. culture, our French culture, Spanish culture. Yeah. It, I think, you know, honestly, it's a tougher question. I, I would, because you're dealing with two kind of, uh, Genesis of culture, right? In one hand, that America West, the West, the New World, is is it was it has a, has been and always is an amalgam of cultures uh, from the very. I mean, you can't you can't really go back in American history and not be constantly seeing even Brazilian, Argentinian, whatever this kind of constant influx of because these aren't these are these are countries that really are held together by an idea. So I, I feel very much that you know. Personally, you know, America is a place that should welcome everybody, really, uh, you know, and, and, and come and add to this great culture. And we, when we put those things together, um, uh, great things happen, I think, you know, at least you get great food out of it, uh, you know, but also you get, you get a lot of other great stuff. Um, Europe, it's a trickier uh, thing. So I, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out because you have a very entrenched culture, you know, that's been here. Now, to some of that degree, it's still it's still um, 
perception because if you really look at cultures are constantly in flux. People are constantly, you know, how many cultures that we had a hundred or 200 years ago don't even exist today. Uh, does that mean that was, you know, is that a bad thing necessarily? I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's just something that happens. Uh, but at the same time that we, we've always been in a globalized world. I mean, the, the, where, where Mike, you probably know this, where does temp, tempura come from? Right. People would say tempura comes from Japan. No, it comes from Portugal. It's a Portuguese idea. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where, where? Okay, ta- here's a, here's what I learned last night. Where does praise tacos, to the Portuguese? Yeah, where does tacos al pastor, which we all eat in Texas, where does it come from? Lebanon. Lebanon, exactly. It is it is shawarma, made yep. into it's Mexican shawarma. Basically, it's Lebanese who came over to Mexico, and just took their shawarma and made it had adapted to the culture and it became tacos al pastor. But so we're, we're living in a world that's constantly mixing and matching and changing. So, I, so I didn't really answer your question, Joe. I just kind of, I kind of talked around it. He's, he's, he's avoiding it. I'm I, avoiding a little bit. Cause there's some, so, yeah. I, can, I, I think, I think it's, go ahead. You answer, Joe. Joe, you were in France. <laughs> talking about food really is Garrick's favorite subject of I mean, yes. anything. <laughs> Food or, or or some kind of music, or a Wes Anderson film, yeah, yeah. or football, <laughs> or soccer. Yeah. And Wes Anderson lives in Paris, Joe. So you know, I mean, who hasn't? Uh, yeah, so, he lives in Paris, Texas, or Paris, France. <laughs> <laughs> He's from Texas. Uh, the genesis of my question is in uh-huh. part um, now. You know, I had a I had a friend who really a French friend who complained a ton about the the uh the instigation of black friday in france and i'm sure this has been on you know the day after thanksgiving in america black friday americans have lived with that forever but that's just started to become trendy in france now and he's but first of all because they don't even celebrate thanksgiving so why is there a friday after thanksgiving to as a reference point secondly why why are we adapting this cultural thing from the u.s which is buy more keep buying more why are we doing that um he was saying so that that's a cultural thing that's been imposed into france but it comes from the u.s not from not from immigrants um he was saying that you know like in many of our cultures i think in europe sunday is basically everything's closed down but slowly but surely, that is becoming less and less a reality. More and more stores are being opened up. Now, originally, that was a Christian idea that came from the church. I think um, you you don't you don't shop on Sundays. It's a family day, and and Chick Fil A. Slowly, consumerism is taking over, and you can't even have Sundays. You got to shop, shop, shop. Well, that's an imposition, probably from certain capitalistic consumeristic ideas that say you know it should be free all the time so he was just he was just saying it's ironic we complain at times about immigrants imposing their culture when really maybe the biggest imposition is not coming from from the immigrants it's coming from other influences american or or otherwise yeah we 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 actually i mean we as people uh, are are very easy or very we accept and impose upon ourselves drastic changes uh, without without being forced. Uh, you know we have we have actually Black Friday here in in Sweden as well. It's kind of funny. It's it's called Black Friday, but it lasts a whole week. 
And uh, we, which my wife and I, we just kind of laugh. So you, you know that Friday's a day, right? Like it's not a whole week, but anyway. Uh, so, so th- there's that, but it, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting culture in general. You do have, like Eric said, you do have a set culture that in, in Europe or, or tend to have more uniform culture among, among countries or whatever else. And immigration does affect that. There is, there's no doubt that, that, you know, that there are ramifications of, of having immigration. The question is, 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 is that all bad or, um, you know, is it a zero sum game? Um, because there's always been immigrations to places. I mean, the, you know, Southern Spain is Southern Spain because of what was forced immigration, but the Moors, I mean, there, yeah. there's those things there, right? There, there's the, there's the stories for me. I think part of it is the, the, the place where I think the church and the role that the church has to play is are we showing a taste of what is to come mm-hmm. that and so the, the church has an opportunity to speak into society that is saying i don't like the way this is changing and the church has an opportunity to embrace it and say but we're going to embrace what is to come we're going to be a different we're going to be a different place where people of different colors and different races and different understanding worship the same god um, someone once told me um Someone once told me that, you know, you have more in common with a Chinese believer than you do your Texan atheist neighbor. And that really impacted me because there's a lot of truth to that um, because of Jesus Christ. And I think that perspective. And so I think the church, at least in Europe, is learning that. I mean, we have a we have a whole row of Nigerian believers who comes dressed in their, you know, finest Nigerian best every Sunday and sits on the front row and worships hands flailing and loud voices and everything else. And then you've got the rest of the Swedes who aren't, you know, who are barely (laughs) clapping. I mean, and and this is the church that I worship in and they embrace each other every Sunday and they're glad, they're glad to have. And the church, you know, as leadership, we're talking about how can we have more of them involved in leadership because we need their diverse thinking and their Mm -hmm. different way of looking at things in our church. And so I I think that for for me, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a question of how does it, how does it affect culture, but, but rather how is the church, how is the church be uh, showing what is to come? Yeah. I I agree with Barrett. I think that's where to to take that because, because it is hard because it's you. uh, I can understand I can understand people in Europe who would be scared that their way of life that they've done for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, America, we, I don't, I don't think it's an, it's an argument that's valid, but in Europe to say we are, maybe we're going to lose that or maybe that's changing. I don't think you can do much about that in the, in the, in the reality of where we are in the world. And that those are things that happen and people are probably been complaining about that since, you know, Moses married a Moabite, right? I'm sure his father-in-law was probably frustrated about that at first. Um, but you know that's that's but I, but I think where we go to as Christians is that we have to be the ones leading that 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 universal uh, unity of of all people in Christ. Um, yeah. Garrick um, um, and Barrett, you're, there was a Frenchman who was a good uh, good friend of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I think they met um, in New York City, and his name is Jean Lasserre. And Jean Lasserre was a pacifist, so I'm not trying to argue or for or against pacifism. But his main reason for being a pacifist, this Frenchman, was 
because he said, how can I justify bombing another country where I'm potentially killing my brothers and sisters in Christ? I can never do that. They're more of my brothers and sisters than my than my own Frenchmen uh, in some sense. Do you know what I'm saying? And and yeah. that struck Bonhoeffer is in a in a powerful way. That's one of the another reason why Bonhoeffer moved away from a nationalistic viewing of the church and all that. And and I think that's a really powerful uh, thing you guys have brought up that our, we're closer in some sense to these brothers and sisters from Afghanistan or Angola or wherever, then, then I might be with my neighbor here. And uh, now I want to treat my neighbor, just as Jesus said, with love and respect. Of course, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that we sometimes lose perspective about who really is our brother and sister and the French. And in France, um, we were hugely blessed. We have been hugely blessed by immigration. And, you know, the, you, you might hear it sometimes, the, the Muslim invasion of France. I, I said, that's, that's, that's crock. Um, just as many Christians are coming from African countries and they are revitalizing the church and evangelizing the country. And, and it's, an, it's an amazing thing to see. So I, I just love some of the things you guys are bringing up there about how we might be closer to our brothers and sisters in China than we are with people in our, in our own neighborhood. You know, I think, too, we we need the other cultures to more fully understand God. I I firmly believe that uh, every culture has redemptive elements in it and uh, different. And, and I, I think I read the scriptures differently with a different set of glasses because of my interaction with other cultures. When I just yep. have my monocultural glasses on, everything I read and interpret is, is very, very slanted to my North American viewpoint. So, uh, yeah, we need the other cultures to get a better and more, what I call it, three-dimensional view of God. Yeah. So that's one of the things that Mike, it's such a great point. That's one of the things that has made me so thankful to, to have the, be fortunate enough to have the experiences that I've had, but also to have brothers and sisters in Christ in every place that I, that I've been to. Um, because I, I will say it is taught, it has made me read the word so differently. Um, you know, my time in Central Asia, which is a culture that's more closely associated, more close to, you know, the culture of, of the Bible than, than what I grew up with. Uh, but then in each place, you know, Swedes have taught me, I think, how to pray. Um, I, I, I'm a doer. I, I want to get out there and I'm, I'm American. Let's, why are we going to pray about it? God will take care of it. Let's just go and get it done. God, you know. Uh, that's a little bit of my personality. Obviously, there's people who pray in America, but so so there are there just different things from each culture. And uh, I, I I'll be honest, that is one of the reasons why I love doing ministry in Europe. Why I love being a part of the Agape Europe family because when we get together as leadership, everyone's got these different perspectives, and you, you kind of talk with people, and you're kind of like, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. I feel like I glean something new every time I either visit a place or talk with one of our brothers and sisters in those places, uh, and it, it, as well as with you guys. I think anytime you move to a different place, and I, whether whether it means moving to a different part of town or whatever else, if you can put on those lenses of observation. Uh, we try to teach our kids this of trying to observe things in every new place we go. What do you see people doing? How is it different from what you know we do? And and how do how how are they changing things? We don't do it a ton. I, my wife listens to this. I make myself sound better than 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 I really am. But we've done it a couple of times. I I swear. Um, but anyway, 
the, the point being is, is how are we observing? And as a missionary, you have to do these things. If, if, the, if the people at home listening to this could only see y'all's faces right now as you're just laughing hysterically at me as I've just completely basically said I'm a hypocrite to every person. We know person. you too well. We know you too well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, that's the good stuff. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> well, well, okay. Hey, so this is, I think the, the one thing I've learned from this time is we need to do this again. Yeah, we do. have these, have these guys back on. Cause there's, there's like kind of a treasure trove of, uh, like I said, these guys are legends. I, for me, they're legends. Uh, yep. Yep. Um, me too. So have them back, but okay. T- to finish up, I think we should all share one food item from the country you've served in that you think that, that you, that is the best. That is your, your favorite thing. I'll start with, with Spain. Hamon. Oh, you can't, you can't. I'm sorry. You guys who live in Southern have lived in Southern Europe. You have, you have an advantage. Do I have to, I don't have to just pick Europe though, huh? Wow. Well, I think we you should we, we, we kind of started off on the, the European. All right. All right. Idea we'll, we'll here. All right, I'll let one of the other guys go. All right. I'll, uh, I'll go. Um, Man, I was just going to say the pastries, pick any of them, just so good. So you can start the morning off on a, you know, a pain au chocolat or a croissant or something like that. Just super, super buttery and so delicious. Um, You can try that in Italy, but it's just like, just not the same. Um, And I love my brothers and sisters in Spain. I would never bomb you, but but our pastries are a little bit better. Um, a, 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 a little bit better. A lot. A <laughs> Spain's lot. not exactly known for its pastries. Portugal's <laughs> it's like saying the too. barbecue in Oklahoma is only slightly worse than Texas. It's like, no. <laughs> I'm close, man. All right, so I'll, I'll stick with the pastries. Yep, there you go. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on the pastries. We have this one type of pastry. Uh, I don't even know how to translate. It's called pastel de nata. Oh, and so it's good. like a little custard tart. And uh, this one particular place, you, you can get them all over, but one particular place, the original place, just amazing. You wash that down with an espresso. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and then you just made by it. monks. Made by yeah, by nuns actually. Yes, or, or nuns originally. Yeah. yeah. So if you're that, that thing, uh, that thing right there is a revelation. Yeah. If you're if you're listening to this, uh, as soon as this thing's over, get on a plane, go to Lisbon, go to Belime, <laughs> and get get and don't, don't don't wait in line. Just go go back. Mike knows the. Just talk to Mike. <laughs> but you can get them a lot quicker, and it's 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 worth the the money to fly over. It's 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 impressive. Stuff. Not wait in line. Go to the back as Mike is. To the keys to the kingdom. I think it was the keys yeah. of the kingdom he gave us. Yeah, the, yep. there's not much waiting right now for anyone who gets on a plane. So hurry. Um, gosh, you know, there's a lot of really great Swedish food. Um, believe it or not, uh, I know it's not exactly known, uh, but there is actually a lot of really great stuff. So one of one of the things though that I absolutely love the most is um, warm smoked salmon. So if you get it just off the smoker, so not a cold smoke, uh, cold smoked salmon is great. But if you get a piece of warm smoked salmon just off the smoker, uh, fresh as can be. Uh, and Swedes are really big on sauces. So every type of food is going to have a sauce. They had a, the current line of Kings is a French line of Kings. And uh, he uh, actually one of Napoleon Bonaparte's generals. So the Swedes hated their King. 
And so they got rid of him and they went and found one of Napoleon's generals. And he thought, well, okay, I, I, I'll go and be king in Sweden for a little while and that'll open up something for me in France. It's the way he thought of it. <laughs> so, so anyway, it never happened. And so he stayed in, in, in Sweden and he hated um, the uh, food in Sweden. And so he taught them sauces uh, the, the, from French cooking. And uh, no joke, no lie, a little bit of trivia. And the Nobel dinner that's held in the Stockholm City Hall um, and all official uh, royal dinners, there is always an egg cup that is placed in, eggs are never served, but it is always placed there. And that was because the king never wanted to have a meal unless he had an egg with it because he figured these people are so bad at food, at least they can boil an egg. So that was his whole, he was a little snooty about, about Swedish food, but a piece of warm salmon with a, there's a dill, uh, cream, creme fraiche, uh, and uh, red onion with, uh, with caviar sauce that goes along with a piece of warm salmon. And if you get that right off the smoker, honestly, there's just not much better in this world. So that's, uh, you know, my love language in life is food and Garrick, you're speaking it. Well, Hey guys. uh, Yeah. I'm yeah. It's late, but uh, I may go raid my refrigerator. See if I can find something. Listen, you two, uh, we will do this again. Uh, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your friendship more than anything. Amen. Uh, You guys have sharpened me. Uh, I enjoy any time that I get to be with you, and this is no exception. Uh, Until next we meet, may we chase the rabbit trails we find.